Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I am bringing you Dr. Sharon Malone, who is among the nation's leading obstetrician gynecologists, who focuses specifically on the health challenges associated with perimenopause, transition to menopause, menopause. Dr. Malone brings decades of clinical and scientific experience to her treatment of women in the menopausal transition and the post-reproductive years. She is a Harvard-educated baby boomer physician who is among the leading voices in this incredibly important field, which is having a burgeoning right now, which is devastating because this is stuff that we should have had all of the information we needed about decades ago. We're going to get into that. But this first part of the conversation, if you think that menopause feels so far away for you that you don't need to hear it, you definitely do. This is something that all women are meant to know about. And it is something that very few of us really know about until in real time we're noticing things that are changing in our bodies and our emotions. And it really is one of those topics that is not particularly sexy to talk about, lasts for up to a decade, can start as early as your mid-30s, and you might not even know when it's starting because many things happen quite silently. So I really encourage you to listen. When I heard Dr. Malone speak, I felt like sharing her information was a public health service particularly for women. And I just really want to share it with you. So this first part of the conversation is what is menopause? What does this transition look like? What are the symptoms? What can we do about those symptoms? What are some of the misconceptions? And we're talking about solutions, which I always want to make sure we talk about. If you enjoy this episode, Please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. It's always helpful to get the word out. And please go subscribe to my Raising Good Humans premium content. You just go to Apple Podcasts and type in Raising Good Humans, and it will offer that option. This latest series is all about sleep, getting your babies to sleep, getting your toddlers to sleep, getting your tweens to sleep, and all the challenges that I know are typical but don't have to be miserable. I would love to start this conversation with a pitch for mothers who feel like they might not be ready to have a menopause conversation and how much we're about to, I think, blow a lot of people's minds. Okay. (laughs) So I would love for you to let us know 
when you start to see and why it's important right. to talk about right. this right. when we're talking about parenting. Right. Well, one of the things that's really important for women to know is that they associate menopause with being older in your 50s. But these symptoms and a lot of it start in your 40s. And it happens for women in usually a very bad time in their lives for there's a lot going on. You're either the parents of middle schoolers or high schoolers. It's a very high stress time. And when you're not thinking of it, you may not associate the two, but the symptoms of menopause can start as early as 10 years before you've had your last menstrual period. And that's why that connection often doesn't get made. And we want busy moms to know that you can't be your best self with your children until you take care of yourself and recognize these symptoms when they occur. Okay. So how do we like what are some of the symptoms, the earlier symptoms that we might not even associate with perimenopause? Right. Well, you know, one of the earliest symptoms that women get during perimenopause is usually a slight change in their menstrual cycle. You know, whereas if your cycles may have been very regular and they're every 28 to 30 days, just sort of almost, you know, imperceptibly, the periods will start coming a little bit earlier. So you'll say, hmm, it's 25 days or 26 days. And it sort of gradually sort of starts winnowing its way down. And that's one of the first signs that you have that things are starting to change as far as your menstrual cycle. After that, and in no particular order, you can have hot flashes, mood swings, irritability, rage, low libido, insomnia, joint pains, brain fog. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, they're literally you know, over 34 symptoms that we associate with menopause. And when they don't happen, you know, in conjunction with the period, or it doesn't happen as, you know, late as you think they start, because you think that's menopause, they actually start happening in that, peri that perimenopause or the menopausal transition, which for most women is in their early to mid 40s. Last summer, I kept saying, why is it so hot in here? Mm -hmm. And my brain, did not remotely connect any dots because I wasn't sweating. Right. And I it, and I did not feel I was quite of age. Right. So I definitely was confused, kept saying it. And then by October, it took me from July till October when I was in a conversation where somebody mentioned hot flashes. And I thought, oh my God, here I have completely disregarded the science and ignored all of these signs, I was having hot flashes for months and months and I had no idea. And it was incredibly unpleasant. Right. And I would have loved to have known and did find out there was something to do about it, but it was not something I was prepared for. And then other things started to happen. And I really got into, a, I had a feeling that women don't talk about this and I am in a position to be able to have these conversations with women or give us a little heads up. I would have liked to have prepared for what is happening. Yeah. And it's just not a conversation. And it is in concert with having adolescents and pre, you know, the pre-adolescents who are going through their own changes. Right. So it's a wild time. Right. But if we don't know what it looks like, we don't know that there's anything we can do about it. What I love that you do is not only let us know what's happening, but that there are actually things we can do about it. 
So I'd love to talk through some of the things that are some of the myths and misconceptions in a way that can frame it so we don't perpetuate the myths. And then after that, I I need to ask you a bunch of brain questions because that was something I was not expecting. You know, I think one of the first misconceptions about this menopausal transition is that it it's a short it goes on for only a short period of time you know i think that most women think oh well i'm going to have hot flashes and that'll go on for 6 months or so and then i'm done the symptoms can last for years and you know Oof. depending on every woman's different but the reality is is they can start like i said in your early 40s go on through your 40s and sometimes will persist even for years after you've had your last menstrual period The other misconception is that women think they're too young for having menopausal symptoms because we say menopause, but when I say that, I really mean the perimenopause and the transition. So it's all of that, that, you know, it can start. So yes, so there are some women who will be menopausal in, let's just say the average age is 51 of having had your last period. That means that there are women on both sides of that. You know, you may have had your last period at 45, which means that the symptoms that you start to have will be in your mid to late 30s. And that's when people are really not thinking about whether or not this has anything to do with the menopausal transition, and let's call it that. And I think the other thing that is the big misconception is that people think that while they are still getting their periods regularly, that as long as they're getting their periods, that this also can't be menopause because the subtle hormonal changes that are happening in the background are happening whether or not you're getting your periods or not. So I often say to women, if you are within a certain age and you are symptomatic, you're perimenopausal. You don't need a blood test to figure that out. You don't need any complicated, you know, MRIs or anything. It is a clinical diagnosis. When you are symptomatic, and you are within a certain age range in that normal age range for experiencing these symptoms, you are perimenopausal. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor. Did you know that every 11 seconds, a baby in America gets a food allergy? It does not need to be that way. There's actually a ton of evidence that the USDA guidelines and leading allergists are pretty much in agreement on Introducing common food allergens earlier in life, like between four and six months when you start solids, really is better at preventing food allergies. Ready, Set, Foods Early Allergen Introduction System takes the guesswork and stress out of doing something really important for the long-term health of your baby. Food allergies are on the rise. Currently, one in 13 babies develops food allergies each year. Evidence-based research, USDA guidelines, pediatricians, and allergists are all in agreement that feeding small amounts of common food allergies like peanut, egg, and milk daily for six months or more, starting around four to six months, is important for babies to give them the best chance at future food freedom. But it's scary to be introducing allergens. Ready, Set, Food was developed by an allergist and mom of two to make it easy, safe, and convenient to regularly feed babies low doses of the most common food allergens like peanut, egg, and milk. And already set food products are made with just real organic food and contain no additives or artificial ingredients. Visit readysetfood.com human to learn more and get exclusive discounts on these amazing early allergen introduction products. For 
years now, I have been using a humidifier for my skin, sleep, and overall wellness. Traditional models are notorious for being, first of all, ugly, second of all, moldy, and really a pain in the butt to maintain. And that is where I was excited to learn about canopy humidifiers. Recommended by leading dermatologists and pediatricians, the Little Dreams by Canopy Humidifier is a completely reimagined humidifier that effortlessly hydrates your skin while elevating your home and nursery to promote easier breathing and better sleep for your baby and for you. Canopy's unique feature and design makes it the easiest, cleanest humidifier out there. It's truly soft, healthy skin's best kept secret, and it can help prevent dry and itchy skin. Canopy's humidifiers most helpful because they have a clean, no mist moisture that effortlessly hydrates your skin to combat dryness, dullness, and its hassle-free technology inhibits mold growth. And the parts go right into the dishwasher. It's that easy. The inhibiting mold growth is key and the convenience of it is key. Plus add subtle soothing aromas to your baby's room with the Little Dreams by Canopy Aroma Kit. Go to canopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy humidifier, purchase today with Canopy's filter subscription, and even better, my listeners can use the code HUMANS at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your skin and your baby will thank you. One of the things that is another doozy for women to talk about this is it's it just feels unsexy and it really is hard to there there is something about like this transition to parenthood and then you finally feel like you've gotten your body together and it makes sense to you again you're in a groove maybe you're not maybe you never feel like i don't want to say get it back because we're evolving constantly but you get to know it in a way and you feel like okay i understand this body after it went through tremendous change if you gave birth and then you often feel like you have to reignite your sex life and feel like you can even make time for that when you're also trying to be a parent and be a human. And then talking about what happens if you don't have the same feelings that you had before or you physically don't feel comfortable. That's another thing that nobody really likes to chat about over cocktails, you know, and I would love to hear from you. How can we recognize that and not confuse it for disconnection from our partners or from ourselves? What are some of the ways that we can address this? There, there are things that help, but, you know, going back to what you were saying about how you start to feel disconnected from yourself or disconnected from your partner, those are not uncommon symptoms at all, you know, and particularly as it relates to libido. And one thing I always say to women is I was like, my God, this transition happens at the worst time of your life. There's usually a lot going on, you know, and again, dealing with adolescence. I mean, imagine if you've got someone going through puberty in the same house while you're trying to transition. There's just a lot of hormonal flux going on there. That is, and we all know what prepubertal and pubertal teenagers behave like, well, the same thing is happening to us. We're responding and our brains are responding to these rapid shifts in our hormones. And, and during that perimenopausal phase, a lot of what you're feeling 
isn't necessarily because of the lack of hormones. That happens later. That happens after you've had the last period. It's this wild fluctuation. Your hormones are one thing one day, another thing the next day. And that is really what I think wreaks a lot of havoc on your on your feelings, how on your mood, on your sleep patterns. And so that is, you know, that's the name of the game. But can you do something about it? Absolutely. Before you consider anything else, you know, the healthier you are entering this transition, you know, the fewer symptoms you're going to have. And I would say, and can you eliminate them totally? No. But exercise is important. Getting enough sleep is important. Eating, you know, having a right diet, because there are also some really profound sort of metabolic shifts that happen during this transition period. And women who've never had problems maintaining their weight before will find that they are doing the same thing, they're eating the same thing, and they're gaining weight. And and what's worse still is not just the weight gain, but where you put it. And during this transition of perimenopause and menopause, most of the weight will, will redistribute to around your midsection. And this happens even if you don't really gain weight. You'll find that it's like, whoa, things are shifting around here in places that, again, are that would make you feel not so attractive because this body that you're about to inhabit doesn't look like the one you used to, you know, for the past 20 years. And you know, and that's neither good nor bad. It's just understanding what's happening here. You can, you know, that's why I said exercise is always great because it elevates your mood. It also, it does not help you lose weight. And let's be clear about that. You exercise because of the endorphins. You exercise because it, you know, lowers your blood pressure. It helps you maintain your blood sugar. So there are a lot of benefits in, in maintaining your muscle mass. So that helps. But let me say, even when you do everything right, you're like, okay, got a great diet. You know, my marriage is good. Everything is good here. I don't have any outside stress in my life. And when, and I think that's the thing that's frustrating for most women because they can't really put their finger on why they don't feel their right. best selves. And that is really when you have to come to the point of, of realizing that, you know, you do the best you can. And then after you've done all that you can do, just understand that there are solutions and don't let people sort of either shame you into not exploring options or even to have your doctor wave you off of options and not offer them to you. Because the other part of this equation is not only do women not know, but a lot of doctors don't know. And they will come in and, you know, this is a very typical scenario. You've got the symptoms that we've talked about. Your periods are regular. Eh, they may have changed a little bit there, you know, a few days earlier than you expected. And you go in and you tell your doctor all these things. And your doctor will say one of two things. Well, yeah, it's kind of what it is. Or they will tell you they'll do blood work and your blood work will be normal. Because remember, your blood work is normal until it's not. And that it, it doesn't get to be, it doesn't change until you're post this whole transition. And so if your blood wow. tests are normal, that does not mean that you are not going through the perimenopausal transition because your blood tests, that's why I said, I don't even get them for women who are, you know, who are transitioning because they're normal one day, abnormal the next, and they go and everything in between. So that's what I think leads to some of the confusion 
is that doctors don't really understand not only what is going on with patients and the periods or lack thereof is not a defining feature. And a lot of doctors are just not aware of the treatment options for women who are going through this transition. And that's the unfortunate piece, you know, that because we've got problems on both ends of that scenario. But for the majority of us going to an OBGYN and talking about these symptoms, you would think that there would be tons of knowledge. And I'd love for you to share some of the, the I, I don't know if it's misconceptions or actually just poor data went out there into the world. But what are we hearing from a lot of, are they, is it poor training? Is it that they're just not updated? What, what is going on there? It's a combination of things for, you know, I think the Mayo Clinic did a survey and they, you know, and they surveyed residents to say, okay, how many of you feel like you have been adequately trained in menopause during your residency training? And only about 20% of residents said that they felt like they had received any sort of training. And even with that training, many of them get out. And what happens, just the natural course of things, when you're a young doctor, you tend to see young patients because that's just how it goes. So you see, you do a lot of birth control, you do a lot of obstetrics, and that is sort Mm. of the cohort of your usual patients. You get older as your patients get older. And so by the time most physicians have been in practice, it may take them, when they've been in practice 15 or 20 years, before they have a sizable population of women who are perimenopausal. So even the little bit that they may have known in the beginning, they don't really, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that was 10 years ago. And then you have to really make a special effort to go back and refresh your knowledge, you know, and sort of be able to counsel women. And and let me and let me say, and I will give my OBGYN colleague, colleagues a little bit of grace on this because I think that OBGYN is the only specialty that I certainly can think of where you take care of children sometimes, adolescents, you take care, you're delivering babies, you're doing surgery. It's a lot of things. And you're being a lot of women's primary care doctor, because, you know, in those years between about 20 and 40, your OBGYN may be the only person that you see in the for sure. And so that's a lot to do. I think doctors are pressed for time. And these conversations about what's going on, you know, hey, what's going on with you? And these sort of in-depth preparatory conversations, they're long. You know, you can't, you can't tell anyone everything about menopause in a 15-minute appointment. You've got too many other things to do. And so whether it's, I won't say it's a crime of commission, it's more omission, because if you don't ask, then I don't have to stay in the room for another 10 minutes. Or, you know, I had a, I had a scenario when, what this used to happen a lot. And I, happened to have very different training because I started in the era before Women's Health Initiative. And we got more training about menopause because we were really looking at it from a disease prevention point of view. And we thought, yes, women should have hormones because we're decreasing their risk of cardiovascular disease. So we had a very pro-treatment approach before the Women's Health Initiative, which changed drastically after the Women's Health Initiative. So I got a little bit more training during my residency, and that was 30 years ago. But I also had the benefit of joining a practice that had been established for 30 years before I got there. So the two doctors whose patients I inherited 
I had 80-year-olds and 18-year-olds from day one. So I had to get up to speed on not just delivering babies, but, you know, I had all these women who were already on hormone therapy that I hadn't placed them on, and I had to know what that meant. And that's not typical, I think, for a lot of practices. But, you know, a lot of what we learn as physicians depends upon what you choose to focus on. And the focus has really not been traditionally on women in midlife. It's been in the reproductive years. And that's where we spend, you know, I would say 90% of our time in OBGYN. So they don't mean to not do a good job. It's just that that's sort of where, you know, your focus changes a little bit depending upon where you are in your career. And when you add to that now, there is a generation of doctors who have you know, been trained since 2002, since the Women's Health Initiative came out, who were actually taught that hormone therapy is bad. Right. Can you go into that a little bit? Because I don't know if people even know, it, I think it will blow their minds yes. about the Women's Health Initiative and the misunderstanding that ensued. Yes. Yes. The Women's Health Initiative was the first large-scale, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, which is the gold standard for medical studies, that involved women. It was exclusively women. 27,000 women were enrolled starting in 1993, actually. And they were going to ask a simple question. They said, well, let's look at these women and let's decide once and for all, does hormone therapy decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease? That was the primary question they were trying to ask. Because all of the evidence before then, just from observational studies, said, well, look at this. Women who take hormones have half the risk of, of cardiovascular disease than women who don't. That was the thought process coming into it. When they did the Women's Health Initiative, because the study was only going to last eight and a half years, they decided, well, let's get the women who are most at risk for cardiovascular disease. So the women who entered this study were on average 63 years old. They were 10 to 12 years beyond the time of, of the normal menopause, which averages 51. And they were women who didn't have symptoms because, and, and this is very atypical of who we would normally prescribe hormones to. We prescribe hormones to women who are symptomatic and usually they're around in their late 40s, early 50s. And those were the women that we had gathered the data that it decreases the risk of heart disease. Well, what happens when you give it to women who are 63 and 12 years beyond the natural menopause? They could not prove that decrease in the risk of heart disease. Well, duh, because if you're going to have a prevention study, you can't give a medication to someone after the disease process is already well down the road. And that was the first major flaw of the design. Only 10% of the, the 27,000 women in that study were in the 50 to 54 age range that women who were typically had been prescribed hormones in the past. So from its inception, it was problematic. And then once they found, oh, well, it doesn't decrease the risk of heart disease, they also had a safety stop, which they were also looking at breast cancer to see, well, does it increase the risk of breast cancer? And if it exceeds a certain point, we'll stop the study. Well, when, after about five years into the study, 
the powers that be at NIH decided on their own, and this was only a group of about five or six doctors, that they had to stop the study. They stopped it without informing any of the, you know, I told you there are 27,000 women enrolled in this study. And so they were in 40 centers across the country. They did not inform the principal investigators. They did not ask for their input into interpreting the data that they got. Because, I mean, let's be honest, the, the facts are the facts. The, it did, they didn't see a decrease in the risk of cardiovascular disease, but they didn't ask why they didn't have a decrease. It was, and the re- answer was because you started it too late. The mm. population that you studied was not typical of the women who would normally be taking hormone replacement therapy. And that, when you couple no benefit in cardiovascular disease, which was the question you were asking to begin with, and a slightly higher increase in the risk of breast cancer, those were the two headlines that they led with. And women, I mean, we had 40% of menopausal women were taking hormones at that point. It plummeted to less than 6% almost overnight because women said, oh my God, doctor, you're trying to kill me. You know, you're not helping my heart and you're giving me breast cancer. And those headlines have persisted. It is 2023 and we're still talking about that because women did not understand that there was a very important concept that did come out of the study. And that was when you looked at women who were in the 50 to 59 age group, those women did have a benefit in their heart disease. So you looked at the women in the 50 to 59 who started hormone replacement, there was no increase in their risk of breast cancer, but it got washed out by the 90% of women who were in the study who were older than that. You could be in the study up to the, they enrolled women up to the age of 79. So I don't think it takes a rocket scientist for anyone to figure out is that you can't prevent heart disease in a 79-year-old. That, that cake is baked already. It failed. The cake is baked. So that, it, that was the confusion. And, and I think that if you want to scare women, and I don't know what their intention was, but if you wanted to grab headlines, say breast cancer, because that yeah. is the number one reason why women avoid taking hormone replacement therapy during the transition and beyond without really understanding that the number one killer of women in every age category is heart disease. I mean, and and by a factor of 10 in some cases, depending upon where you get them, in terms of how much more, how many more women are going to die of cardiovascular diseases than die of breast cancer. But we're not afraid for reasons, you know, perception problems, we're not nearly as afraid of heart attacks and strokes and Alzheimer's and the things that we should be afraid of because we're so overly fixated on breast cancer. And I think sometimes you should say, you know, we can, we can almost, we're not ready to declare victory, but we can certainly say that thank goodness nets, you know, because of awareness and because of early screening, 90% of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer will go on and live their lives. And you know what they die of? Cardiovascular disease. So that is sort of the muddled message that came out of that study. And the breast cancer, and another piece of it that did not get reported at all, they stopped. And, and, and let me back up for a minute to tell you what the, what the women actually took. One dose 
of medication. They didn't do multiple doses to see if it's better at one dose or better in another. They had one dose of medication. It was Premarin, which is conjugated estrogen. It was a synthetic progestin that was given every day. And those w- that was the first group where the study got, the study was stopped early. But there was also a group of women, because we learned from earlier experience, that if you have had a hysterectomy, that you don't need to take the progestin, you know, for relieving symptoms and getting the benefit, all you really need to do is take the estrogen. So if you don't have a uterus, you don't need to take the progestin. And the findings that they stopped the study for in the estrogen and progestin group, they did not see in the estrogen only group. And they let that study continue for another two years. Well, let me tell you what they found in the women who took estrogen only. And this has persisted through 20 years of follow-up. The women who took estrogen only had a decrease in the incidence of breast cancer, not an increase. They had a 22% decrease in the risk of breast cancer, and they have a 40% decrease in the risk of dying from breast cancer, even if you were diagnosed with breast cancer on hormones. So the that positive benefit, and then let's talk about the other things that happens in both groups decrease in the risk of osteoporosis, decrease in the risk of type 2 diabetes. And let's talk about all the symptoms that women have that are relieved by estrogen. The, there's also a decrease in the risk of what we call the genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is dry vaginas, itchy vulvas, painful sex, urinary tract infections, urgency, frequency, all of those things that tend to come up that, are, that women are symptomatic and complaining of. That Are they life-threatening? No, but they sure are life-altering for the woman who is experiencing them. No discussion of that whatsoever. And, you know, so we had all, we had positives and we had positives. We had a few negatives, a slight increase in risk of breast cancer. And I to give you an idea, of how slight that increase was. When you say 26% increase in breast cancer, that sounds terrible. It's like, oh my God, it's 26% increase. But what that really translated to in real numbers was that if you did not take estrogen and progestin, now let's remember, I told you in the estrogen only group, they had a decrease in breast cancer, but in the estrogen and progestin only group, your the number of cases of additional breast cancer that they attributed to the use of hormones was less than one per thousand women per year. 30 per 10,000 women per year will get breast cancer, no matter, just for living and having breasts. And if you take the estrogen and progestin, it went from 30 per 10,000 to 38 per 10,000. So that's where that number comes from, an additional eight per 10,000 or less than one in a thousand cases. And that risk is equivalent to the same risk of drinking more than two glasses of wine a day, being overweight, and or not exercising. That's the same level of increased risk that hormone therapy adds to your, you know, basic risk of getting breast cancer. And that is something that, again, I think that women don't understand because it shouldn't loom that large in your mind. And I think that some of the guidelines that we have gotten from the North American Menopause Society have addressed some of those concerns because you remember I told you 30 per 10,000 women will get breast cancer with doing nothing. So I can never tell you whether you will or will not get breast cancer. Your risk 
is your risk based on all of your lifestyle, all of your family history, everything else. But is adding hormone to that increasing that risk significantly? And the answer to that question is no, it is not. So as with all things, you have to weigh risks and benefits. The risks are small. The benefits are great because they're the long-term benefits that we are seeing for women and just quality of life. And to get back, and I promise I'll leave the Women's Health Initiative behind, but the reason why this study also did not approximate what happens in real life and who really gets hormones is that when you're doing a double-blind study, one of the things that has to happen is that you can't know what medication you're on and your doctor can't know what medication you're on because you introduce some bias if you think you're on a medication, you think it's working. And the reason why they had to have women who skewed older, they also had to have no symptoms because if you're having hot flashes and you're in the estrogen group and your hot flashes go away, you know what medication you're on. Likewise, if you're in the placebo group and you're taking your medication diligently and you're still having your hot flashes all day, every day, you know you're not on the study medication. And so, again, that population, in addition to being older than the average woman, they also didn't approximate because these are women who were not basically symptomatic. So a lot of, lot of problems there and a lot of, you know, and I think that, to be fair, if everything that they said about the Women's Health Initiative, the studies that they, that they did, if they had just amended it with the, with the words, Estrogen slightly slightly increases your risk of breast cancer if you start it more than 10 years after menopause and you are more than 65 years old. And that applies to just about all of the negative things that they said. It only applied to women who were older. They said the same thing about stroke and Alzheimer's, but it was only for women who were starting it six, at age 65 or older. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor. Have you ever gone on social media and just gone down a rabbit hole to figure out a cause for your symptoms? Or you stumble down questionable advice from experts, but they aren't really experts. They just have really exciting ways of getting you to listen to them on social media. There are definitely better ways to get the answer you want and the care you deserve from trusted professionals, not random people on the internet. Finding the right doctor is a challenge that can be made so much easier by ZocDoc. Just go to ZocDoc. It's the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them, and they treat almost every condition under the sun. So if you feel like something's going on and you need a doctor, there is a place to go. That's ZocDoc. And when you're not feeling your best, just trying to hold it together. Finding great care should not take up all your energy. It definitely shouldn't come from social media. Go to ZocDoc, their free app that millions of users rely on, can find you the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule and takes your insurance and that you can see pretty quickly. So go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free, and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's zocdoc.com slash humans, zocdoc.com slash humans. 
I'm going to admit something to you. I'm not into running errands. <laughs> really, I'm an online convenience person. And so Thrive Market is my go-to for all my groceries and household essentials and the convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to my doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Now, of course, if you have young children, it's really fun to go to the grocery store and like pick out all the fruits and point to the names of things and make a game of it. But at a certain point, nobody's running errands with you. You're ending up taking lots of time and there's an easier way to do it. As a Thrive Market member, I can save money on every single order, on average about 30% each time. And on top of that, Thrive Market has deals and pages that change daily, so they give me cash back on many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. I saved a lot of money ordering this brand Primal Kitchen. For example, I was looking for sauces that weren't laden with sugar and corn syrup, and I found it cheaper. So... When you join Thrive Market, you're also, and here's the best part. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash humans for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash humans, thrivemarket.com slash humans. It's so important to listen to the science accurately. And it's not even just in mainstream, it's not even layman science. It's like physicians didn't even, right. the messaging right. didn't get across. And to your point, like if you say there's a 20, was it 26%? 26%. Whatever. Yes. Yeah. But, and it, and nobody says twenty six percent of what, like that, right? That's a big detail, right. like you described. Right. I mean, ask a gazillion women right. if they would, you know, if every day when they're thinking about, do I feel like exercising or having a glass of wine or any of those things, a French fry, right. like, are they calculating right. the risk? Right. But let's say because you can say whatever you want to say with statistics. Actually, you know, if I said to you just yeah. anything, if I said doing X will increase your risk a hundred percent, you know, right. And if you say, Oh my God, it increases my risk a hundred percent. Well, that doesn't mean a hundred percent of people are going to get it. You have to ask the next question. Well, what is the, what is the incidence of it? If it's one in a hundred, then increasing a hundred percent goes to two in a hundred. So not nearly as scary as when someone says 100%. And that was kind of the little sleight of hand that they did with the Women's Health Initiative. They gave a statistic without giving the understanding of what the baseline risk is for women. Yeah. And it, this is, you know, translational science is so important. And in this case, I had no idea until I actually heard you that this is such a problem. And the other part of it is how did this happen to women? Like, what is that about? You know, there is a big question there. You know, this whole conversation is about agency. It is about you getting the information that you need. And whether you decide to take or not take, that's up to you. But I think you need a fair hearing of what the risks are, what the benefits are. And you decide. Your doctor should never tell you, oh, no, dear, you can't have that. We're grown women. You know, so I don't need protecting, I need information. And then you, doctor, can help me get access to good information 
and help me make a good decision. But the decision is mine, not yours. And that is where we need to get to in women's health generally. And the fact that we are still fighting this fight and it is 2023 is really pretty darn amazing to me. But that's where we are. What's amazing is that I feel like not one of my peers has been having this conversation until very recently. Now it's awesome because thanks to physicians like yourself, I think this is happening finally, this conversation. Right. But what blows my mind is feeling all of my adult life, like I was advocating for women in so many ways and actually, and for myself, when I was missing a massive, massive piece of the pie and don't really still right now, I don't feel completely empowered to assess what is best for me. And I don't know exactly who the right people are to go to for the answers, but I'm getting, I'm getting a lot more of it right now. Mm -hmm. So where can people go? And then I still, if you have time, need to have this conversation about what happens to our brains, because I think that's also a shocking revelation. But where can people look to if they can't just go? Because I don't think you could recommend go talk to your OBGYN for the very reasons that we talked about. So you could, but you might get a different answer than is necessarily the answer that is going to be helpful. So where is there a main resource that people can go to to figure this out? Or are we still in the nascent stages? No, I think that there are places that you can go and get good information. There is the North American Menopause Society, which is menopause.org, that they have patient information there. Mayo Clinic has, you know, information about it, as does the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has information on menopause. There are many companies, and this is where I think it becomes a little, you know, a little scary for women is because the marketplace has finally, you know, realized, oh, menopausal women and perimenopausal, we buy things, you know, we buy things, we buy a lot of things, as a matter of fact. And depending upon how you are marketed to, you know, you as the consumer are not always aware of what are the good things to have and what are the bad things to have. That's why when I stopped my clinical practice two and a half years ago, I joined Alloy Health. And what we do is a, we have a simple mission, and that is to provide information to women about menopause and perimenopause, and then to offer solutions. Because as I said, many women for, very, for various and sundry reasons cannot get prescriptions even when they want them. So our mission is simple, is to sort of democratize that process. You know, and I still say, if you have a doctor who knows what they're doing and will give you access and explain this to you, then Godspeed. That's who you should be going because our mission is not to replace your doctor. It is not. It is to provide that access to information and medications for women who cannot get that otherwise. And it's very spotty across the country. And the more I talk to women, I realize just because you live in New York City or Los Angeles does not mean that you have access to good information as well, because there are also people out there that will try to sell you things. And this is in the physician population, not in just in, you know, what you're seeing on the internet. So I say, you have to be careful, know your source. You know, I think that there is 
no way that I would have joined Alloy if they had asked me to do or say or sell something that I did not wholeheartedly believe in and that is consistent with what I've been doing for the past 30 years. So there are, you know, there are people who are out there like that who do that, but you know, trying to get yourself educated is really 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 important. And I one of the things that I do recommend that patients do. If you're going to see your doctor in person, you know, go in with a copy of the 2022 guidelines of the North American Menopause Society, because it's very explicit on what the contraindications are, who can take, who should take, and what the benefits are of taking hormones. And the reason why I say that there's really this sort of patriarchal, you know, intrusion into issues that involve women's reproductive organs is because, you know, there are doctors out there that really act as gatekeepers. Oh, no, no, dear. You can't have that. No, no, no. And I think that when anybody who tells you that, if a doctor tells you that, you should print that out, take it to them and say, have you read this? Because a lot of things have changed Mm -hmm. since 2002 when the Women's Health Initiative out. And it is really voluntary about who finds this interesting and who wants to keep up in this area. So, oh my God, there's just so much to think about. Wrapping up on the product side of it, when you do see products out there, because there are a lot of burgeoning businesses, to your point about women this age really Right. spending and spending smart and spending well, but how can we spend smart? Are some of those, you know, are the products that are not meta, you know, hormone replacement therapy, there are other products, are those beneficial? Are there supplements that are beneficial? Are there lubricants that are beneficial? Are these things, is it necessary to use vaginal moisturizer? Like are those kinds of things? Okay. Let me, let me be very clear about this because I think that it's important to know who can do hormone replacement, who should do hormone replacement, and what are the alternatives to hormone replacement therapy. And I think that, again, when we're talking about who is a candidate, if you have not had breast cancer or endometrial cancer, you have not had a heart attack or stroke, you don't have active liver disease, or you haven't been bleeding you know, after menopause for reasons that you don't know why, or you haven't had a pulmonary embolus, or in some cases, a a clot in your legs or legs. Those those are the exclusions. Simple. It fall in those categories. For everyone else, then there's the the conversation about whether or not you should. If you have an early menopause, an early menopause, which means if you are menopausal at 45 or below, you probably should take hormone replacement therapy. And certainly if you have a premature menopause, which means menopause before the age of 40, it is even a better idea because having an early menopause puts you at risk, higher risk for cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, as well as all of the other symptoms that you're going to start to have those years ahead of where your your peers who are going through menopause at a normal time. So those are women who probably should. And then for everyone else, it is a matter of how symptomatic you are, how bothered you are by those symptoms. There is no virtue in suffering. 
I mean, that, that, that's the part that gets me. It's like, oh, I'm just going to suffer through. When is it going to be over? I have no idea. Six months, six years, 10 years, I don't know. But having suffered should not be a badge of honor. I think if oh, you are in the say that more. <laughs> there's no there's no virtue in suffering. And I think for women who find that their day-to-day existence is impacted by the symptoms of menopause and you don't fall into those categories of who can't take and you are below the age of 60 or within 10 years of your last menstrual period, then you decide. And there's a very simple equation here, and that is you can try it. It's very easy to know where your symptoms are going to get better. It doesn't take a year to figure out. It takes a you know, couple of weeks, a month at most, to know whether or not you feel better. And you try it. And again, the risks are small. The benefits are great. And as I said, there's no medication that you can take that has no risks, not even aspirin. They all do. But whether or not you have the benefits that you perceive in the short term and the long term should be the determinants of whether or not you do hormone replacement therapy. And one of the things that the North American menopause is very society is very clear on is they say this. What is hormone, what is the FDA approved hormones for? Prevention of osteoporosis. So again, if you're at higher risk for osteoporosis because your mother had osteoporosis, you know, maybe a better idea than not for you to take hormones because there's no other medication from a preventive point of view that does what hormones do. If you, again, if you're symptomatic or if you can also take hormones to treat the, the what are called the, the genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And this is a good time to say what they also say is that when you are symptomatic and by that, the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flashes, all that, there is nothing that works better than hormone replacement therapy. Are there other- I mean, anecdotally, I- the change was so drastic and incredible. Right. I went on hormone replacement therapy and I felt like I wanted to run into every one of my friends who are younger and just say like, right. you must make sure right. to take care of yourself. Right. This is, I, I, I went from miserable to like, you know, zippity doo dah singing in the streets. Right. And it doesn't <laughs> take long. That's the other thing. It's like, no. you're not going to sit there and say, I'll find out two years from now. No, you're going to find out two weeks or two days from now. So again, nothing works better. That is the gold standard for treating vasomotor symptoms. And that's really what what the FDA has approved it for. Now, are there other things that women try and other anecdotally that say, and it's like, well, yeah, but remember the hardest thing in the world to beat is a placebo. So you know, most women will try a bunch of things. They'll try, but they try this, they try that, they try this, they try that. And then years go by and whatever the last thing was they took, that's the one they give credit for making their hot flashes go away, which many times is just tincture of time. Hot flashes for most women will eventually go away. So that is not my opinion about what the most effective treatment is. That is general agreement. And when it comes to whether or not to use moisturizers or whether to use vaginal estrogen, because again, those are two separate things. You can, if you decide, hey, I'm good, my bone density is great, I'm, you know, I'm physically fit, I have no symptoms, then I'm not, you know, again, if you don't want to take it, don't take it. But those symptoms, those urinary symptoms tend to show up years later. 
because you know mm-hmm. it's it's sort of a the longer you are estrogen deprived, the the more those symptoms tend to come up vaginally. And the difference between using a moisturizer or a lubricant, you use a moisturizer if you're just comf- uncomfortable walking around every day, you know, something hurts or it's itchy or whatever, and you can use a moisturizer. Lubricants are for use when you are having sex, you know, either alone or with a partner. If you're going to use a lubricant, then you use either a silicone based or an oil based lubricant for intercourse. They work. For women, remember, because there are going to be some women who just don't want to do vaginal estrogen, which I think all women should, by the way. But nonetheless, <laughs> what you are dealing with lubricants and moisturizers, you are treating the symptoms. When you use vaginal estrogen, you are treating the cause of the symptoms. Mm. And that is really the difference. You want to say, why is your vagina dry? Because it's thin, it doesn't lubricate well. The vaginal estrogen actually helps regenerate the the collagen, the, the epithelial cells in the vagina, such that it behaves more the way it's supposed to behave. So you're going to the root of the problem as opposed to just dealing with the symptoms. And as such, Vaginal estrogen isn't to be used episodically like a lubricant. You use that all the time, be it two or three times a week or whatever, you know, depending upon which preparation you use, it's ongoing because when you stop it, then that process starts up again. So, and is that a prevention thing? Like, is that the kind of thing where you don't think you need the vaginal estrogen because you're not there yet? But if you are of a certain age, it will make it so that when you get there, it won't be as drastic? No, I think that if you, you, and here's the good news about that, unlike systemic hormones where we say you should use them before age 60 or within 10 years, you can use vaginal estrogen whenever. You know, if you're not symptomatic and you're not having problems and you're lubricating well, or you can have sex and just use a lubricant and you're fine and it's not painful, you don't need to use it because the benefit, it won't be less effective if you start it late. Got it. You can start it okay. whenever you're symptomatic. So you don't need to start it before you need it. But once you need it, you need to continue using it. And do you continue using it for the rest of your life? Or is this also something that you stop over a certain age? Well, it, it depends because it depends on why. If you're using it for sexual, you know, for improvement in your sexual function, at some point you may not be sexually active and you don't care whether you use your estrogen cream or not, then, you know, up to you when to stop. But for women who are having the symptoms such as the, the urgency, frequency, frequent urinary tract infections, because these are problems that we see in the elderly. You know, nursing home patients, you would be surprised how many of them are being treated for persistent bacteria in their urine, incontinence issues, that kind of stuff. So to prevent that in the long term, then that might be a reason to continue as opposed to stopping. Okay. I'm so excited to continue this conversation. We're going to talk about incredible developments in our understanding of what goes on in our brains during this period of perimenopause and lots of fascinating, albeit frustrating information about misconceptions in translational health and how we have come to completely misunderstand hormone replacement therapy. And again, things that you can do to best support your evolving bodies and brains. 
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products 